Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Todd Field. Todd Field, the writer, director, and actor. He's made three perfect movies. Tar, Little Children, and In the Bedroom. Free for free. I think he's a visionary auteur director. I urge you to check out his two previous movies if you've not seen them. I think they're just fantastic. Super lucky to get time with Todd as he's super busy in award season for Tar. And it was great to talk to him. He's such a fascinating guy. Very mysterious. And we get into it about working with Kubrick. The world of classical music. And where he's been for the last 10 years. This is his first movie in forever. And I'm glad he's back. Here's me and Todd Field. How are you? Oh, good, good. Uh, sorry, I, you know, um, I, I'm technically challenged this morning. I apologize. Um, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Weirdly, I was talking to my podcast music composer yesterday, who works under the name Telephone Tel Aviv, and he did the music in Newport South, which you were in. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so he worked. He worked with uh, with uh, um uh john hughes's son yeah and with and with kyle uh, kyle uh, actually was called out on this film if you look at the very first credit card of acknowledgements kyle cooper is on there um he directed newport south and he also did me a great favor on my first film <clears throat> with the opening credits and then sort of advised us in terms of um of, of, of creating the credits for this film yeah they did all the music in the film as well for the kid in the movie who's making all the cool electronic and ambient music that was all them yeah i remember that very well that's incredible uh, boy well um semi regards please i uh uh it, it that that feels like um yesterday but i know it was a long time ago <laughs> yeah but what makes it even stranger for me is we're always talking movies and he kept on talking about in the bedroom and then I was like, oh, I think I've seen it. That's the one with the, um, what was it? The woman with leukemia. And he was like, no. And I was like, wait, that's Marvin's room. So that's Marvin's room. That's, that's Marvin's with Meryl room. Street. Meryl uh, Streep and Leo DiCaprio. Yeah. yeah. And then I got in my, and then he got them going on about it again. And I was like, no, this is the one with Steve Gutenberg doing Rear Window. And then that was the bedroom window. A bedroom window, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, no, family, grief, revenge, Marissa Tomei, Sissy Spacek. And so then I was like, I don't think I've seen it. And he was like, watch it. And so I watched that over lockdown. And the second I saw the font you used on the title sequence, I was, I kind of sat up a bit and thought, this is going to be amazing. And then 
it was, it completely blew me away. And then the following day, I had the same, well, a similar moment when I watched Little Children and I heard the narration. Again, I, I don't know if you ever had those moments, you probably have in cinema when those small details just spike your attention and you know this is going to be something special. Wow. Well, that, that, that that's wonderful to hear. Um, I, I, I'm glad that the those are both things that happened at the beginning of both those films. Um, and um, in terms of the... Uh, in terms of those opening credits under the bedroom, that's specifically what Kyle helped me with amongst other things, that which was, strange. um, yeah, I, I had set that up, you know, I, I sort of mocked that up exactly like what you're seeing in an avid, but you know, we fin we shot on film and we finished on film and to do that on film, uh, not to get too digressive, but to do that on film, the problem is, is, um, uh, you have to do sort of lap dissolves. So they, they used to have so uh, in the lab they would have an A, B, C, D uh, roll potentially, um, and so you'd have to run them simultaneously to marry the credits so that you didn't have to do an optical, and then it would just get grainy. And you see that in a lot of old movies, you know, when they when they've gone back and and um, and and they they you've lost a generation. So I went to Kyle and said, "Can you help me with this?" And and one other thing, some some. Uh, some simple removal of, of an item that oughtn't to be there. Um, and he said, yeah, I'll do it. And he did. Um, and that was a, that was a very uh, lovely and uh, friendly thing to do for him. And he refused to, to let me pay him for it. So. And sticking with opening credit sequences, you've stacked what is normally your end credit sequence at the beginning of tar. Yes. I was wondering what was your intention behind this? Well, the tar deals with the themes of power and what power he does, you know, the ugly stick of power and whoever holds it, what, what that does to someone. Um, but no one gets handed the ugly stick um, that they, they have to, you know, sit atop a, a power structure and that power structure is our human beings. And, and, um, and so um, it just is a, a thematically it, it seemed like, uh, the right thing to do. Also, you know, when I was writing this, the film, you know, I was, it was the beginning of the very first lockdown in the world. And um, like everyone else, you know, we were all sort of streaming uh, probably a lot more than was probably healthy for us and looking at, uh, um, you know, movies 24 seven. And, um, you know, if you watch Netflix, you get to the end credits, they fly to the upper right-hand corner of the screen. And if you've worked in film for any number of years, there's a good chance you you know people that have worked on films and it's always fun to to look and see of you course, know yeah. and so you always scramble for your remote to try to push it to get back to and then rewind it to, to watch the end credits and i you know it's like i i i have a real problem with that um because if 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 a company's going to go to the trouble of making a film and, and according people their their due um, then they should have the opportunity to be seen as much as anyone else. It takes, it's a collaborative art form and it, it takes many, many, many hands and minds and hearts to, to make a film. Um, and otherwise they just shouldn't be cynical about it. They just should simply not credit people, but that's absurd as well. So that was sort of the idea. Yeah. I can't stand when it goes to the, since you've watched this, watch this. And I'm like, no, I want to see who the DOP and the composer was. And, what was the song I thought I recognized in the end credits? 
Yeah, and 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 who and who the lead makeup person was. I mean, sometimes you'll watch a movie, an older film, and I'll say, "Oh, look, there's you know, there's Bud Westmore." Well, I you know, I worked with Monty Westmore, and the Westmore brothers were famous. They go all the way back to like Treasure of the Sierra Madre. You know, I mean, these are like these are people that worked on thousands of films. You know, um, and there's it's thrilling to even even if you're just a cinephile to to be able to look mm-hmm. at different names and think about. Uh, the different people that collaborated, you know, on, on things. So, um, yeah, it's so thrilling, especially if you see a film that looks incredible and then you see the DOP like, ah, that's why, you know, they had whoever shooting it. Indeed. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mubi. Mubi is a creative streaming platform for movie lovers. I've been a Mubi subscriber for years and I want to give you free recommendations from the Mubi UK platform. Okay, Souvenir Part 2 by Joanna Hogg. Really fantastic. The most accurate representation of going to film school and not always in a good way but man that was really fantastic makeup 2019 claire oakley i love this movie i saw it in the cousin when it first came out it's also in a caravan park and it's really sinister and spooky Kind of Lynn Ramsey doing a horror movie in a caravan park. And Funny Ha Ha by Andrew Bajowski. Basically the first Mumblecore movie. He was the originator, so do that. You can try Mubi for 30 days for free at Mubi.com slash deeper into movies. That's movie.com slash deeper into movies for a whole month of cinema for free. But obviously start with those for you that I just recommended. Okay, good. What came first for your initial idea? The world of classical music, a composer, a downfall? What was your spark of an idea? Uh, it was really about this character. Um, I've been thinking about her for many, many years with no place to house her because I, um, you know, I'm lucky to be employed as a writer, but 99.9% of the time I'm employed to adapt material. You know, there's always IP involved. Um, so uh, this was an opportunity that where the studio came and said, you know, sort of vaguely, you know, would you ever think about writing something set in the world of classical music with a conductor? And I thought, 
Sure. You know, um, and they didn't make me pitch it to them. They didn't ask me to to beat out an outline or anything. They just cut me loose. And it was, again, it was the beginning of the pandemic and I had this character and I thought, ah, I've got some place to put her now and how perfect, right? Um, because it's so um, abundantly clear that what the power structures are and the lines are, um, if you have somebody playing a conductor, I mean, I, and that's not a new thing. I mean, there's there's famous examples of the, that in, in early Hollywood, like films like Deception and things like that. You know, uh, often classical music was set as a very dramatic or melodramatic backdrop for um, misbehavior, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and people abusing their power and things like that. So um, I'd never thought of putting her there. I'd always kind of thought her at that, you know, saw her, you know, from my notebook pages as sort of like running a me major media company or an energy company or something like that. But um, th this was handy. Um, and so that that's sort of how it started. And weirdly, yesterday I went past Madame Jojo's in Soho, which was... Which is sadly closed. Oh, you know, yes. Okay. Yeah, well, they closed it. They closed it down on some sort of like, you know, cooked up charges that somebody had a fist fight in the street outside of Madame Jojo's as if that was. No, they wanted the real estate. They wanted the real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Soho is not the same without Madame Jojo's. Next thing you they'll they'll close down the Algerian coffee shop on Old Brompton Street and then we'll be in real trouble. That's still there. Yeah. All the comic book stores and record stores used to be there in the 90s. And my brother would take me on these cool trips. But I'd always be like, keep your head down for the next block or so. And, you know, and then we'll buy some records and have McDonald's. But those Sleazy Soho days are long gone. Yeah, yeah. It was a different world down there. I mean, I, I remember being chased by some of the girls that would um, sort of, you know, display themselves outside certain clubs yeah. you know and um i remember and there was a whole section of soho where it was just it at night where they just openly sold drugs like you know it's just like it was just it, you know there it was yeah it was a very very different world much the same uh you know as sort of times square was when i lived in new york and instead of the sort of disnification uh, of, of times square that we that we have today yeah, it was kind of dangerous. Do you remember that amazing Mona Lisa, the Neil Jordan film? That's a really great snapshot of that era. You're so right. And that's such a great movie. You know, Larry Clark was going to remake that and he came super close and then the money got taken away at the last minute, which huh? really sad. Really? Yeah. Well, that would be interesting. That would be an interesting film to, to see remade. I'd like to put that through the Larry Clark lens. It'd be yeah. a really interesting piece. Big question, but what did you learn from Kubrick? I think I learned a lot of things that I kind of already suspected. You know, mainly he confirmed a lot of ways of working process that um, I'd already employed in film school, you know, um, and that's about priority. You know, how do you prioritize uh, a process? Um, and I think that's hard because Filmmaking can be very industrial with a lot of supposed know-how and, and over-professional. Um, and Stanley was a true amateur, you know. I mean, he he was very suspicious of the accepted wisdom of, of any process or tool, so he was always innovating. Um, uh, he also put his, his focus on uh, preparing extensively um, and so that once the work began, 
he was focused on the people in front of the camera and that was really all he was focused on he also i think had um the good sense obviously um given what he achieved um that that would confirm those methods which was um you know he he was also suspicious of himself he 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 liked to work on a film for a good period of time because he didn't make many films. Um, and so he always wanted to be able to rediscover the film every day. It wasn't like he came in and stuck to a plan, you know, and, and that because of the nature of filmmaking, you know, as a practical matter, it's very expensive. People mm -hmm. want plans and they want you to stick to them, you know? So, um, he was prepared enough to where he could be nimble and change within a, a certain, you know, um, frame he'd set for himself or a, or a container of, of, of uh, a possibility for himself, but he could still change it on the spur of the moment if he, if he wanted to. Um, and that I, I think is, was the great genius of, of Stanley Kubrick, you know? Yeah. I know a lot of people said everyone talks about, how many takes and how meticulous he was but i also read he's he said that when you're on set and you're shooting the movie and you're capturing the movie why the hell are you going to rush it why why aren't you going to explore every possible way of shooting something so when you get to the edit process you know you've got so many different colors and and takes ready. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I think that, you know, much has been made over the years about the multiple takes things. And even mm -hmm. some directors have very, you know, have tried to build their reputations on, oh, now I do multiple takes too. But I don't think that they necessarily understand why Stanley did that. You know, um, I think that the, a lot of the noise that came out of that were from actors who had never been on stage. They weren't trained actors. They were film actors. I, I don't think you would have heard a, a, a great deal of the British cast that Stanley used to ever talk about that. Because when you do multiple takes, as he did, mm -hmm. um, if you broke it down to what those movie stars were used to, doing six takes of coverage from six different angles, the, the amount of takes that Stanley did compared to a normal filmmaker was the same. The only difference was that these film actors didn't get to do, you know, 10 takes on one angle and take a break and go have a cigarette and then come back and do the medium shot and come back and do a long shot and come back and do a detail, et cetera, et cetera. Stanley was doing it all in one, but, it, but the amount of times that the, that the performer had to, to execute was precisely the same. The only difference was that they didn't get a smoke break. And, right. and the, the advantage of that for, for Stanley was a sense of discovery, but also, um, through repetition, as any actor will tell you, there's a certain point where there's diminishing returns. But once you break through that dimini those diminishing returns, just like you would do on the stage after rehearsing something, you know, in week six, something strange starts to happen, and 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 that's what Stanley was interested in was was what that strange thing was. But you can't just go straight at that strange thing; it has to evolve. You know, he wasn't interested in reality. Like reality was the last thing he was interested in. And how was the spectacular masked ball scene? How long were you shooting that for? Oh, the masked ball scene. Um, you know, I I, uh, I I may misremember this, but um, there were two sets for the masked ball scene. So um, when we shot out in Elvin and Castle, 
near Bury St. Edmunds, um, you know, and all the beet fields out there, that sort of area. And that was a really, that's a very interesting um, piece of architecture and uh, incredibly impressive, uh, but had it had a, also a, a, an interesting history in that during World War II, it had been repurposed to house American flyers. So Jimmy Stewart's where, where that where that ceremony is taking place. Jimmy Stewart slept, slept on a cot on that floor. Um, uh, so there was that location, and that was done in one particular section of the filming, which is I think the fall of '97. Um, and that we didn't get to the rest of the um, the so-called you know uh, ceremony scene um, until January of '98, and that was wow. done out at a different location, which is uh, in Hertfordshire. Luton Hall, never. No, no, no. Luton is the first is the first location, and that's where we started. Oh, right. We started that in October of '96. But I would say it was probably a couple of months, you know, altogether for that sequence. If I if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, but but I could be wrong. And after watching your first two films and being so in awe of your filmmaking, I was thankfully I didn't have to wait too long for after my discovery of you for Todd's come out. But I was wondering, what were you doing in those years in between? I've read about a Blood Meridian adaptation and a Franzen adaptation. Yeah, well, uh, in the case of those things, uh, Blood Meridian, I, I I tried to get the rights to that for a very long time. Ridley Scott had them, and he was kind enough to to say, okay, have a go. Um, and I had it set up at a studio, but the budget was just untenable. There was no way, and there was no reason to do that um, to make a film out of Cormac McCarthy's book unless you do it properly. Um, mm-hmm. So I abandoned that idea. And then uh, I had, uh, you know, there are many other things in the interim years, but yes, Jonathan Franzen, uh, Daniel Craig, David Hare, um, and, and a host of other people, we, we had a writer's room and we worked for a year to adapt John's uh, book, Purity, um, for a television series. But again, um, we wrote 1,200 pages um, and it, it would have been, absolutely extraordinary we loved it we worked seven day weeks you know um but uh uh but the budget was was too much for the for the network to stomach so so we abandoned that they wanted us to cut it down to like six hours and none of us were interested in doing that so um yeah there was a lot of there were a lot of projects that were extremely ambitious um that required certain resources that just um weren't there and that that's the short answer okay this is a strange question why have a new rangers cap well, Tar, you know, comes from a, a, a borough of New York. Linda comes from a, a borough of New York uh, in Staten Island, out near Fresh Kills. Um, and part of her childhood was uh, one of them was, you know, she's from an immigrant family. Her first entryway into music was, you know, playing a, a, an instrument that you often find um, in in you know, first or second generation uh, immigrant families because it's it's not too expensive, it's portable, and it's also part of a, a tradition, which is the accordion. And her second occupation was hockey. She's a big hockey player. So right. uh, if you look closely, uh, um, you know, if you if you had any interest of, of looking really closely at her wall, you'll see a young young Lydia Tar with a black eye with a hockey stick. Um, so she's a big hockey fan. That's amazing. I love her attention to detail. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. This has been such a pleasure. You're 
such an incredible filmmaker. I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, you're very kind. I, and I appreciate, uh, appreciate the conversation. Thank you, buddy. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. That was me and Todd Field. What a guy. I wish I had more time because he's literally a walking encyclopedia when it comes to the making of Eyes Wide Shut and Stanley Kubrick's practices. And he's a master filmmaker in his own right. Once more, I'm going to say it. If you haven't seen In the Bedroom or Little Children and you've you've already seen Tar and you've dug it, go back and dig out those previous movies. They're absolutely fantastic. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Joshua Eustace, aka Telephone Tel Aviv, for my beautiful music and for turning me on to the movies of Todd Field. Okay, that's it, and we'll speak soon. <laughs>